welcome back. Oh, there we go. Starting a new year and yes, I didn't have something adjusted there right. Welcome back to as we kick off year seven of Behind the Lens. Who knew? Who to thunk it? We're starting year seven today. And I can say it has been a thrill to be here every Monday for you uh, the past six years. And we're going to keep going. Uh, already have some really great stuff lined up for you for year seven. Um, but first, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the writers, directors, actors, producers, costume designers, composers, sound mixers, sound editors. <clears throat> As I'm choking here, not breathing. Um. Uh, we talk to them all, and you get to hear it right here on Behind the Lens. Every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. And if you're hanging out by your computer and you want to pop on and see the live stream, not that there's anything exciting to see because it's just me sitting in the booth, uh, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, and you can watch the live stream. And the best part about the live stream, the only really fun part, is the tablescapes that I do every week. And we're in the heart of awards season now. So if you tune in right now and you see uh, our lovely set here, you're going to see a ton of hot contenders for awards. Many, many films that already have picked up critics awards many yet to come and then the big boys uh the baftas the oscars golden globes are still down the pike but in some of these films you've already heard me talk about them here on behind the lens or you have found uh, the reviews on behind the lens online.net which is where you can find reviews interviews trailers and more stuff red carpet stuff whenever we go back to red carpets let's not forget we're holding out hope for that Again, but very excited about today's show. Joining us at the midpoint of the show, Blaine Weaver is back with us. Uh, the last time Blaine was here was in March of 2017 for his film, Cut to the Chase, that he wrote, directed, and starred in. This time he's here talking about his new film, Getaway. He took off one of his hats this time. He's just writing and directing. He's not acting in this one. Um, but who doesn't want to start off the year uh, talking about a really cool slasher film within a slasher film within a slasher film? Um, I can't wait to talk to Blaine. I've been following Blaine since 2009 with one of his very first, I may have been his very first feature, Weather Girl. Uh, that premiered at Los Angeles Film Festival back in 2009. It was one of my must-see festival films that year. Um, so it has been a joy to watch Blaine in front of and behind the lens um, over the years. And I'm really excited to talk to him once again, uh, this time about a getaway. But before... Blaine joins us. I'm so excited. I wrapped up 2020 talking with none other than Jason Isaacs. We all know him as Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter franchise. He's 
now appears in he does uh, voicing for star animated Star Wars. He's in Star Trek Discovery. He has, was in the 2011 film Abduction with Taylor Lautner. Uh, the Patriot, one of my favorite favorite performances of his, a single shot, London Fields. The man is always working, so I'm more than excited that I finally had a chance to sit down and talk to him because the last time we had spoken was December, uh, was uh, 2011. Uh, and also, Simon West, director. Uh, both gentlemen are here. We have interviews with them talking about their new film, Skyfire. Skyfire is marks new territory for Simon as a director. He's known for his action work. Expendables 2, Wild Card, The Mechanic, Con Air, General's Daughter, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider. Um, if it's action, Simon's there. Especially that great collaboration he, he had over a number of films with Jason Statham. Uh, but now he ventures into, he steps out of action into action disaster movie. Uh, Skyfire is the first volcano-themed Chinese film in action advent in the action adventure genre that is made for global audiences. Shot in Chinese and English, the the story is set on a tropical island in the Ring of Fire. And those of you who follow me on social media know that I obsess about earthquakes sometimes. And over the past month, and Pam, Pam, sound engineer Pam is sitting in there nodding her head up and down. Um, we have had quite a number of 6.0 and higher quakes in the Ring of Fire region uh, in the South Pacific. So, but Skyfire is set on a tropical island in the Ring of Fire, and there is a young vol- volcanologist who is at the island to develop a new system that can predict volcanic activity. Um, this is, is an actual science. It's been ongoing, and I have to commend Simon who did so much research in bringing the story to life as to what is accurate, what isn't, what is part of Vulcanology. And Vulcan, not Vulcan, uh, for those listening. Uh, not, not Mr. Spock, sorry. Uh, but uh, the whole thing is this young scientist, Mang, she watched her mother die. Uh, many years ago when she was a child, she was killed in a volcano, which is why it has been Meng's ambition to develop a warning system. This is very much in line with what we saw with the Helen Hunt character in Twister with volcanoes, a young girl who lost her whole family to an F5 tornado and then devoted her life to developing a warning system. But with Skyfire, the volcano... we're now in present day. Meng has been working on her on her uh, discovery on her on her system, and we have a problem. There is a luxury resort that has been built by an entrepreneur named Jack Harris, who is played by by Jason Isaacs, and it's built right there so that you can go and tour a volcano that is still considered active. Um, unfortunately for all. The volcano erupts. So it turns into, and this, and it erupts by the 30 minute mark. And then it is a nonstop, relentless. Your heart is in your throat, your chest is pounding, and the film does not stop. Uh, for 
the rest of the of the movie. It moves quickly. It is interesting. It's fun. Uh, for the science geeks out there, you will like seeing a, a lot of the visual uh, volcanic aspects of the film that, that Simon put so much into. A thrill for me. Once again, Simon teamed up with Noon Orsati as a stunt legend ex- extraordinaire. He teamed up with Noon, who is also the second unit director. And coming in as his cinematographer on this one is Alan Cardillo. Um, he's worked with, and Simon has worked with Alan before, as has another friend of ours, Mark Pellington. Alan cut his teeth on camera work. One of his early films was Henry Poole is Here, uh, directed by Mark Pellington. But Alan has worked second unit uh, director of photography for Simon on quite a few films, and uh, Wild Card being one of them, The Mechanic. Uh, then he also is responsible deputy that starred Stephen Dorff, Gunshy, the series The Mick. I mean, it is a top-notch. Production values are excellent. The action is superb. And it's just a whole lot of fun. So without any further ado, uh, and by the way, this did open in China December of 2019, number one at the box office on opening day. And in the at the local level in China, $25 million alone. And now it gets its global release tomorrow, digitally and on demand. So take a listen to my exclusive interview with Jason Isaacs talking about Skyfire. You know, I, I entertain myself with these diverse endeavors. You entertain yourself and are equally diverse with all of the roles that you take and the characters you play. Well, that's because I can't decide what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> and luckily, I've fallen into a profession that allows me to try everything. <laughs> and I got to tell Jason, you certainly have. You are now part of the three biggest franchises in film history, Harry Potter, Star Wars, and Star Trek. Well, I'm, I think it's fair to say I'm peripherally part of Star Wars. Well, I'm a character in the... I'm, yes, it's true, I'm in the mythology, but I'm also in one of the animated series. Right. Little kids out there, that counts. That counts a whole lot. Yeah. Hey, listen, there's an action figure. There's more than one action figure and a Funko Pop thing. It's odd, though, because when people uh, have asked me, what's it like being in a successful franchise? I go, I don't know. I, I do exactly what I've done on the tiny, low-budget films. I turn up. You know, I look at the script. There's another actor there. I try and bring someone to life who has needs and wants and, you know, gets angry or gets upset or falls in love and I go home. I'm not any part of selling 100 million lunchboxes or you know, tickets on a roller coaster. I have no idea what it's like. I, the sets are the sets. And one of the reasons they become successful is the sets are genuinely creative people and there's talented people around who want to tell stories about human beings. And what happens to you after that is, is I, I'm entirely unengaged with. <laughs> That's because you're always working and moving on to the next project. Well, not for the last nine months. I mean, I tell you <laughs> well, that, so, yeah. <laughs> but I'm so glad that you came on board for Skyfire. Uh, number one, you're working with Simon West. Uh, I adore Simon. Adore Simon. I tried to work with him for a long time. Yeah. I auditioned for him, I don't know, 30 years ago, I think, for Con Air. And um, unsurprisingly, the job went to John Malkovich instead of a completely unknown British actor who stumbled into an audition. But I remembered so vividly because uh, it was a scene in which the, the, whatever person I was auditioning for had to hold a gun up 
to a pilot's head. And I said, well, I'll, I'll use this pencil, shall I? And the, the assistant who was operating the camera said, well, why don't you use this? He reached behind into his waistband, pulled out a gun, clicked it and gave it to me. At <laughs> which point I started to get the shakes of it. couldn't quite like what I was being punked. And Simon went wide-eyed as well. And I said, wait, this, this is a real gun? He said in a very high-pitched voice. And he said, yeah, yeah, don't worry, the safety's on. And I <laughs> never, my audition was appalling, of course, uh, and I'd never forgotten it. And so some 25 years later, whatever, a few years ago, Simon got in touch with me and wanted me to do a uh, part in a film that didn't end up happening. But I had such a lovely time talking to him that when he then called later, you know, a year, a year later, I went, okay, that film didn't happen, but I'm doing a Chinese action movie and uh, a volcano blows up and you built a resort in it. What do you think? And I went, when do we start? <laughs> I, I actually love your role as Jack Harris in Skyfire. Oh, yeah, well, I'm glad you haven't asked me what it's like playing the villain because, you know, I'm an entrepreneur who is uh, trying to provide some great service for the world. I'm, as the current Buzz phrase has it, I'm led by the science. And, uh, okay, to be fair, uh, you know, it wouldn't be much of a movie if the volcano didn't blow up. But I don't think anybody was calling Dickie Attenborough the villain of Jurassic Park. No, no. Uh, he built the park, the dinosaurs ate people. How come he didn't get the blame? That, that's just it. And see, I do not see you as the villain. I see you as, I see Jack Harris as a businessman, um, an interesting businessman, and I love the energy and the frenzy, and I love the tales that you tell about Jack's watch. But the the redemption, the redemption, I actually teared up, Jason. I would take the credit, but it's down to two things. One is down to Simon's rather brilliant orchestration of uh, all the action and uh, the juxtaposition of the action with the very human emotions in it. But also that magnificent seven-year-old girl oh. that I had to carry along. I mean, I, I, she was Meryl Streep. Simon would say things to her, obviously through a translator. He would ask her to cry a little later or look up and see a flame and then see her dead relative and then get some hope from my watch or whatever. And she was so perfectly calibrated, could alter anything she was doing. She could do it hundreds of times and be completely truthful and heartbreaking every time. I felt rather churlish wanting to complain that this very light seven-year-old girl, after running with her all afternoon, began to weigh like some lead cannonball. <laughs> <laughs> Did I have to keep running from the flames? Could I just throw her in and get my arm to break? Um, but she, I think she really is something quite special. The, the, and the camera loves her. I mean, the way yeah. she looks up at, up, up at you as you're carrying her, but the tenderness and as tightly as you're clutching her, um, you know, this is the selling point. This is Jack Harris's heart. He has one. I know, I agree. And by the way, I was clutching her tightly, partly because I didn't want to drop her because I was sprinting, <laughs> but also partly because there are fireballs. Now, uh, some journalists, rather entertainingly, asked me what it was like shooting near a live volcano. I didn't quite have an answer for them, but although we weren't actually, spoiler, you know, near a live volcano, we, I was running through giant balls of flame and walls of flame and exploding things and ash and all the rest of it, and uh, I had this little girl vulnerable in my arms, and you know, if I trip and fall, if I burn myself, get too close to something, as I did a couple of times, it's no great big deal, but these parents had entrusted their child to me, and I, I took that very seriously, so um, I, clutching her tightly was partly the terror of damaging her. And I can understand that because I know Simon did so much of this virtual, so much of this practically from all the explosions. Yeah. The pyrotechnics are incredible here. 
Um, but everything, the, the action, the, the car chases, the explosions near the cars, you know. Well, it, he was given a big toy box. And the thing about, you know, uh, a, a big Chinese film with a big release is, uh, uh, as you know, a big film in the West will, will be released on 2,000 screens, maybe 3,000 if it's a giant movie. This thing started on 20,000 screens in China. What? The scale of the number of people who are going to see it is enormous, and the scale of the film is enormous. And Simon was given, you know, all the toys in the box to play with. Well, and Simon, knows what to do with them. Simon does know how to play with those toys in the box. He really does. And I love... Also, I, you know, he devised lots of the sequences, so they'll go, well, there's a jeep that's running, you know, outrunning lava field. He goes, well, why isn't it going backwards, and why doesn't it leap over a ravine? Anything that anybody came up with, he will always you know, turn it up to 11. Oh, of course. And he's been doing that. I think the first time Simon and I ever, ever first met and talked was when he did Harry Brown a number of years ago. And right, right, right. then to see him and what he did with Sly with Expendables 2 and then working with Statham on the Mechanic and Wildcard, I mean, Simon just ratchets it up. And I love this pairing with you coming into this film. Because well, I mean, I love to work with him. He also gave me, given this Chinese film, the license. He goes, what do you want to do with him? And I said, let's make him uh, Elon Musk. Let's make him South African. And they, I went, because he's an entrepreneur and he's pushing things. So, so I played South African. About two weeks in, I actually looked at the Elon Musk video and realized he's completely lost his South African accent. <laughs> so, I got that wrong. But, um, you know, he's incredibly clever. Also, I've worked with a few of those. You know, I've worked on a few of those very, very highly adrenalized sets. So mm -hmm. mostly people are shouting and screaming, you know, there's a lot of noise and uh, sometimes very alpha male directors need to be the most alpha male on the set. Simon is such a gentle and um, precise and kind of convivial presence. And oh. just as a reminder that in order to create uh, you know, testosterone chaos on the screen, you don't need it behind the camera. That's it. Well, you know, January is going to be a very big month for you because not only is Skyfire opening, but you've got Dr. Bird's Advice for Sad Poets opening on January 12th, yeah. where that yeah. also yeah. stars... I would say opening, of course, opening nowadays means yes. available to click and stream uh, anywhere. And then I have another you know, beautiful film called Mass, ah. which is uh, at the Sundance Festival, which again, uh, most of the Sundance Festival will be uh, on screen. That's, yeah. that's one not to regret in a way, because uh, normally it's just the people who make the journey to Park City, Utah, and now lots of people will be able to watch it at home, which is a great thing. But, uh, you know, it is sad that these things won't all be seen on the big screen, but, but there are bigger problems in the world. I'm going to have to ask Jason about mass because sure. this is, I have known Fran Kranz for a number of years. And, oh, also, and also Casey Wilder Mott, who came in as an exec producer on this one. Yeah, I, yeah. This has been Fran's dream to direct. This is his first directorial, first thing he's written. And this Let me is. Tell you, it won't be his last. It's, it's, it is a magnificent piece. This really is, is such an important film. Um, yeah. Can you briefly it tell? Is. I mean, I hope people see you know, it. They might get put off by uh, a badly worded description, um, but it's really a film about forgiveness and and getting over the divides, you know, the hatred and baggage that divides us all so much. And uh, no one should be distracted by, you know, what it seems to be about. It's really about the human condition. And uh, there's nothing to hide from. It is actors pouring their souls out and representing every shade of humanity up there. And we all of us carry baggage and carry, uh, you know, carry things that are destroying us. And that if we could let them go, we would, you know, we'd live better, happier lives. And I think there's never been a time 
more poignant uh, and more resonant to have a film like this come out. Yeah, I'm very excited to see that one, Jason. Very excited. Um, Me too. I mean, look, I haven't seen it. Oh. I remember we, we shot it, and it was it, by far and away easily the most powerful and overwhelming thing uh, I've ever experienced making a film. But I had no idea if any of it would be captured on camera, or, you know, we were so lost in it, the four of us. Um, it's just incredibly heartening to find out that people are watching it and having a reaction even a fraction as powerful as we had making it because you can lose yourself in a film and have an overwhelming experience and none of it transmits but I'm being told that it does which is uh, you know which is great news well I think it's a good sign for 2021 that we start the year off with three Jason Isaacs films <laughs> I gotta tell yeah, you I promise the public it won't happen for a very long time I didn't make them all at the same time <laughs> they're like buffers you can wait a long time three come and then you can wait a long time again but I think after the year we've had, this is a very good omen to start the year with three of your films. Oh, well, I, that, that's a lovely thought. I, well, I wish I was making some more, but um, the world has bigger problems than me uh, getting stuck doing the washing up every day. But I can't wait for things to get back to normal and get out and tell some stories again. Oh, I can't wait for you to do it. Jason, this has been a treat getting to talk to you. I think the last time we talked was in was like 10 years ago for abduction. So, oh my god, yeah, it's funny. I was just watching my 15 year old is re watching all the Twilight movies, and I was watching it thinking, Gosh, that's Taylor. When I, you know, he's grown up a lot since then, but I remember that boy so much. He was he was such a boy, and there was such a weight on, on his shoulders, and uh, uh, and I felt terrible for him, uh, but he handled it very well. But yeah, so it's been so nice to get to talk to you now, and I just can't wait to see Mass and Skyfire. I love already, so. Oh, thanks so much. That's good. Oh. The other one's good too. Yeah, I just—I don't quite know how to describe Doctor Bird. It's—it's it's one of those indescribable. I have a feeling it might become a cult classic because uh, it's very off the wall and um, it doesn't really. I mean, it's, I guess it's a rite of passage movie, but it's told in such an unusual fashion. I saw the short film that the director made and I, I got in touch and I said, I, well, "Whatever you do next, I want to be in it." He said, "Well, I'm, I'm doing a feature version of this," and I went, "Okay." Just sometimes you, you see things and you go, I, I want to be on the set with you. I can't wait to see that one either. And I know that Emma has to move you along today. Sorry about uh, that. Oh, I know. I, I hate her for it. I, you know, today I don't like Emma. <laughs> uh, but, Jason, I hope I get to talk to you again in the future. I, and I hope I get to see you in the flesh sometimes. Yes, too, oh, and I hope it's nice. not nine years. So... <laughs> yeah. Well, you stay well till I see you. You Thanks, too, babe. Jason. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Jason Isaacs talking about not only Skyfire, which you can see tomorrow, but also Dr. Bird's Advice for Sad Poets, which you can see tomorrow. And if you're buying tickets for the virtual Sundance, you can see Mass, written and directed by Fran Kranz. And as our regular listeners know, Fran has also done, been on Behind the Lens Live multiple times, <laughs> as has Mass's uh, executive producer, Casey Wilder Mott. So eventually it all comes together. Um, but now, without any further ado, we're going to jump into director Simon West. And a couple things I just want to point out about Simon directing Skyfire. Uh, number one, this is the first Hollywood level Chinese Hollywood level action tentpole, uh, and they're underwater scenes. Ninety six hours of underwater shooting, 
and they used 500 kilograms of explosives for all of the explosions and fireballs. If you guys watched Dante's Peak with Pierce Brosnan, <laughs> you thought there were pyroclastic clouds and all kinds of, of lava balls, or if you watched Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche, they ain't got nothing on this one. Simon really did. As you heard Jason say, Simon West pushes things to 11. I think here he really pushed a lot of it to 12 or 13. So take a listen to my exclusive with director Simon West talking Skyfire. I'm very well. How are you? Well, I'm so happy to get to talk to you again. It's been a while since we last got to talk. When was it? When was it? Uh, I think the last time we talked was for Wild Card. We were on a roll there for a while. We had Expendables 2, Mechanic, Wild Card. Um, and I, oh, I just always love talking with you, Simon, and especially about this film. I'm so excited with this film. You, you jumped from action into disasters. Yeah, it's not, it's not a huge jump because they're quite they're close cousins, I think. You you reteam with Noon. I was I'm so excited that you brought Noon Orsadi in on this one with you. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, Noon's fantastic, and yeah, I was just um, uh, talking about it the other day that um, you know one of the influences for these disaster movies were those classic '70s movies like um, uh, you know Carrie Inferno and. Uh, uh, Poseidon Adventure, and we all remember that big stunt out of Poseidon Adventure where the the guy falls right through the ship and lands in a big light. Yep. And uh, that was that was Noon's father who did that stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, who recently passed away this year. And so we were reminiscing. I was reminiscing with Noon about his father doing that big stunt, and now I work a lot with Noon uh, doing stunts, and then his son's a stunt man too. So it's like three yeah. generations. It's it's just like the Gilberts and the Waugh family. Um, you know, Fred Waugh, because I know Fred worked with Noon's father, and Fred's two sons, Scotty and Rick, uh, were stuntmen, went on. They're both directing. I mean, Rick's got his new film opening uh, Friday, uh, Greenland, with Jerry Butler. Oh, right. Wow. I always love the action that you bring to your films, and having you and noon team up together again is great and you got disaster and action with skyfire and i know you did a lot most of this practically too you didn't cgi yeah, well, this I'm, action you know, i'm a big fan of doing that and uh, you know when you've got working with great stunt people um they want to do it practically because you know that's their thing and they're sort of skilled at it and i think the audience can see the difference between you know cgi and the practical so wherever possible, I always try and do it in camera because it's you know it's more fun to shoot and you get a realism that you obviously don't get with CGI and and because it's not you're doing outlandish impossible things, it, it the audience is sort of more on the edge of their seat really even though um, you know it's it's obviously it's fake and it's done safely but it looks much more dangerous when you do things in camera. Well, I think it it looks spectacular. The action and the disaster stuff. And then you throw in underwater as well. You gave us the whole kit and caboodle here, Simon. Thank you. Yeah, well, again, that was uh, my, you know, stunt coordinator, Noon, uh, played a big part in that. He's great with underwater stuff. And we designed this um, underwater, it's actually a romantic scene to start with. I said, 
you know, I want to have a very romantic sort of ballet underwater between this young couple. Um, but then, of course, it soon just turns into kind of a disaster scenario when the volcano erupts and the, uh, the underwater uh, cave there, you know, fills up with molten lava and they have to escape. So um, that was, a, a, you know, a great sequence to, to shoot. I mean, I, we, but what we didn't realize, of course, was our, our actress uh, didn't know how to swim um, when we cast her for that. And so uh, we found out we had to do a very rapid crash course in uh, two weeks learning how to not only swim, but how to swim underwater for, you know, a very long time on, on air. And, um, you know, it's a very difficult environment to shoot underwater for even if you're experienced. Um, but, uh, you know, this actress, Diane, did an incredible job and was so brave and um, spent literally, you know, two weeks underwater um, oh. having never swum before. Wow. And that whole scene looks spectacular, Simon. You've got, it's beautifully lit. Um, I guess Alan, Alan Cadillo did the lighting for that, but you've got light coming from above and really picks up nicely and... You, you've got her, your costume designer, put her in something, a chiffon that's more diaphanous in the water. So it really does, it looks like a, a water ballet until... Yes, exactly. I, want, I wanted it to be a very beautiful scene because it's romantic and it, and that, like you said, it has to you know, be reflected in every department from the lighting to the choreography to the wardrobe that they're wearing underwater. And... Um, it's a scene, you know, it's a proposal for marriage, basically, mm -hmm. underwater, um, that, uh, you know, then turns into an action scene. So it was uh, very carefully worked out, and um, I, it's one of the scenes I'm most pleased with in the film. Well, and that's a real turning point in the film, too, because that comes in right there, somewhere around that 36-minute mark. Because once we hit that 36 minutes in this film, it, it you got us on a roller coaster ride. You are relentless. It It's... We are in the mix with everybody. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious about in visualizing this and bringing it to life. Did you take any influences from some of the classics like Volcano, Mick Jackson's film, or Donaldson's Dante's Peak? Uh, because they've been pretty much the seminal volcano films. <laughs> Yeah, for yeah. years. So actually, I mean, I, I actually mostly um, watch sort of National Geographic and, um, and things like that because um, what I tried to do was was turn it into you know the, the volcano into a character because um, this, the, the volcano actually ends up being the monster in the movie. It's yeah. almost like a monster movie as well as a disaster movie. So you have to be inventive with that, and and you have to you know, give the audience something different every time the volcano decides to show up and, and cause mayhem. And so I had to go on a sort of a, a course as well in learning volcanology, everything a volcano can possibly do. And they're very different, you know, in different parts of the world and the way the lava moves in different parts of the world, the way they erupt, the different gases, the different um, steam jets and things like that. So I, once I've watched a million documentaries and... <laughs> read everything I can on it, then I have the ammunition to, to design the action sequences because I know, you know, my bag of tricks. I know, well, when the volcano turns up this time, it's going to do this. So it's going to, you've seen the, the lava in the last scene, but what you haven't seen is what the lava does when it's superheated and can travel, you know, at 30 miles an hour. And so then I have to sort of check that that is uh, possible. So I have to go and find evidence somewhere of, 
extremely fast-moving lava rather than just the slow-moving lava. So everything I sort of have to check to make sure it's sort of possible in reality. It just may not have all happened at one go. So this incident might have happened in one eruption on one part of the world, and this other thing happened in another part of the world. But what I do is in the story is sort of it's the worst-case scenario where the, the four, five, or six worst things that can happen with volcanoes <laughs> all happen on this island. Um, so you get, you know, the audience gets their money money's worth because uh, it's like uh, six different volcanic eruptions. Well, and you really set it up beautifully for us in the first half of the film, first third of the film, uh, where we have that computer model that uh, Meng has been working on and is so passionate about. And we actually, that's where we really feel like the volcano is a character because we see the different pieces of it popping up with that it, through the hologram uh, concept. And it's spectacular because you actually give us as viewers a mini tutorial there about, okay, bring up the gases. Okay, bring up the chambers. Okay, bring this up. And each one is a different color. So we're seeing these elements come to life. So when you then have these things happening subsequent to that, we actually, if your mind is working, <laughs> we realize, hey, yeah, okay, we saw. This is where it's coming from. And I thought, think that is just so fabulous, the way you've constructed that. Thank you. Yeah, because I think, you know, I need to educate the audience very quickly at the beginning of the film of, of what world we're in. Because obviously I've spent months beforehand researching all this and, and knowing all the possibilities but i have to sort of bring the audience up to speed very quickly in the beginning of the movie so they understand what the threats are and what is and that was the first part of our exclusive interview with simon west we're going to come back to that uh later in the show but right now because he's so patiently waiting on hold we're going to bring the fabulous blaine weaver live hi blaine fabulous i love that introduction you like that? The fabulous. <laughs> yeah. How are you? I will take it. <laughs> Tell everyone that. <laughs> so good to talk to you again. Oh, my God. You know, it's every few years, you know, whether we like it or not, you do another film. We've got to talk about it. Uh, I, I'm really sorry. Oh, <laughs> I mean, oh, come on. As I, was, as I was saying at the top of the show today, it's like I've been watching your journey since Weather Girl, going back to 2009. Um, wow, that's so cool. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Weather Girl was one of my must-see festival films for L.A. Film Festival 2009. Um, you ha showed so much promise uh, as a director. You had such great vision and a really great command of the different elements of production. And well, to, thank you so much. And to watch your journey and the films that you've done, um, I love seeing the growth in you as a filmmaker and as a storyteller. So I'm glad that my faith in you back in 2009 has not <laughs> was not <laughs> that, for nothing. That makes me feel great. <laughs> uh, Weather Girl was such a fun movie and such a great experience, you know, and L.A. Film Festival, uh, a perfect place to yeah. premiere it and everything. It's just so cool that, that anybody uh, gets to track, you know, my career or, or, or know the different movies, you know? 
Well, I do. You and quite a few other guys who really started out on the festival circuit. And that's where I first, you know, was introduced to you and your works. Um, so it's been, it, for me, it's great fun to be along for this ride with a lot of you. Um, but yeah, you and Weather Girl was all, always had a soft spot in my heart. So, and I got <laughs> to tell you. you this new one, Getaway, is about as far from Weather Girl as you can get. It's a little different, right? Oh. It's a, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Blaine, this is... Now, is it true that you actually use cast and crew that came from Shenandoah University where you teach? Yes, that is true. Oh, um, my God. You know, we, we, we were going to make... I, I, I Basically, I got hired... Uh, by a production company to uh, to shoot a lifetime styled film, and we were <laughs> going to use the the uh, university as our location, and you know have some ancillary characters you know that were cast from the the local group, and at the last moment the uh, the financing fell through, and but I was already out there prepping the movie, and you know as you said I was teaching a, a screenwriting class uh-huh. and. It was just we had this this window when we were going to shoot. Um, I had a production company. Uh, there's a production company out there called the Film Studio at Shenandoah, and we were just like, "What if we did something else? Like, what if we just made something quick and uh, dirty and you know, guerrilla style?" And we made Getaway, and uh, like you know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. You know, we were using a lot of very green talent in front of and behind the camera. It was literally myself, my producer, Paul DeFranco, and uh, our producer slash cinematographer, Chad McLarnan. And we were kind of it, crew-wise. And we made this movie, and I'm just so proud of how great it turned out, how scary it turned out, and uh, that we got this really nice rollout. Well, and I have to say, at the top of the show, I described it as a slasher film within a slasher film within a slasher film. Uh, right. I think that's a pretty. Uh, I think that's a pretty apt description. Um, and the premise is a bunch of films, college film students. They've got to make a film for their final projects. Right. That's standard. That's like normal. So that's a great premise. That's an easy premise. It's one that everybody can tap into. Um, right. But then it's the college students that are grouped together to make this project that really just sends this totally off the rails. My God, <laughs> my God, if I was directing something and I had these people, if these people were the, were the crew, oh my God, I'd turn yeah. and run. I'd run. I, it's all based in real life. Like, this, as you said, this film is meta upon meta kind of thing. Oh. So it's, you know, they're making a film and even the killer, you know, is filming his kills. Yes. So there's three different steps. And we had so much fun pulling from real life, pulling from our, my real experience on movie sets, pulling from the experiences we were having while we were out in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night. If something happened that just seemed like, oh, that should go in the movie, you know, um, <laughs> we, we just kept rolling with it every time we hit a problem we put the problem in the movie and keep going <laughs> i mean it just i mean you start with your casting we've got to start with them and 
you have cast as director uh, as bitchy director Tabitha, as I have described her, Abigail Haggerty, <laughs> and then you have Crystal uh, Rashoki as yep. as Abigail, the producer uh, of this student film. Those two, in and of themselves, we have one that all she's worried about is she gets car sick, so she's got to ride in the front seat of the car heading up to the location <laughs> for the shoot. The other one who goes stealing things along the way, um, it's like both are fighting for alpha position. And both right. and both you want to strangle. It's like, okay, <laughs> kill them now. I, I swear I've actually been on that movie. Oh, I'm I've like, been on a set like I've been on sets like that before. Um so but you you, you get that tone set and then then you have um and a great great performance here by Michael Reccia or Reccia yeah. who plays Krog the cinematographer, the director of photography. He is so much fun watching him. <laughs> Um, drinking and then going He's to amazing. light. Yes, drinking and then going to light the set. Yes, we've seen that happen on sets too, have we not? Y- yes, we have. <laughs> yes, we have. I have to be honest, Krog was the most fun character for me to write. And then it would always kind of irritate me when uh, Michael would improvise something that was funnier than what I had in the script. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, as a director, I get to take full credit no matter what. Well, of course. Even though he made it up. I put it in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and, but and then you surround it. We've got the the jealousy, the love, the romance, jealousy issues happening uh, between the tri- the triangle of Maddie and Noah and Kayla, and then you then you have a BFF that is really not that much of a BFF, and it just. But the real standout among your actors is Emma Norville as Maddie. The wannabe actress who gets shot down and assigned to props. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she she's amazing and was a, a, a huge find for us. Um, and uh, I just like I think she's going to go really far in this in this business. I mean, how did you how did you even write this, Blaine? I mean, granted, what? so much of this, a, as you said, yeah, you've been on sets. I've been on sets where this kind of stuff has been going on, especially in indie films, especially mm-hmm. in indie films where they're low budget, no budget, no, but micro budget. Um, so, but where did this idea, how did you sit down and craft this? Because you have a large cast for yeah. a low budget indie film. This is a very large cast that you have. And, I have to commend you. You break some of the tropes. Uh, so often in slasher films, we're always used to seeing the black guy get killed first. You see a black guy in a <laughs> right. film. I mean, watch Scream. Scream lays it out for you, people. Um, <laughs> that doesn't happen here. You just buck a lot of the tropes. And you know, we 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 like to lean into a lot of them so that you are expecting the thing to happen. And then hopefully we put a new spin on mm-hmm. it. Either the thing you're expecting doesn't happen or it happens in a completely different way than you were expecting. Um, that, that's what we wanted to do. And the, the, the story and the idea, I, I had a script that I'd written uh, a long time ago that had kind of been sitting around. And when this opportunity came, 
we had literally three weeks of prep to to with with a an ancient script that needed a lot of work. And I think, like all independent film, you look at your assets, you you see what you have, you know, and uh, then you build the structure around what you can do well. And we had a, a bunch of really talented people, and so I kept like kind of tweaking the parts and you know making them fit the talent that we had there, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And talk about the talent that you have there. We've got to look behind the camera. Uh, Chad McLaren, as your cinematographer, does some really beautiful work, um, and especially with a lot of those night shoots. Really yeah. nice, nice work. I'm curious about... Because you have a definite visual tonal bandwidth here within the film. Um, and you have a couple moments where you take us out uh, and you punctuate something with life and with vibrancy. Not too often, but that stands out for you. And then you go and, and the two of you just zing us with a kill or, <laughs> or something. But Chad's work, the, the framing, the lighting in particular, those night shoots... And then the way the two of you treat and shoot the death scenes. Um, you've got great death scenes, but a lot of the horror of it is off frame. It's out of frame. Mm-hmm. So it comes across with this Hitchcockian idea of letting your imagination running, run away with you. Yeah, and I have to say, Chad, I, Chad is... A, a genius. I love working with him, and uh, I agree with everything that you said. Thank you for him. <laughs> but like uh, his talented artistic um, sensibilities are obvious when you watch the movie. But what is not obvious is what he was working against. You know, he literally we we, we had a limited budget as most independent films do, but also he had no support. The only people there to help him were, you know, film students who were, you know, very green. And he was teaching as he was going Um, to say that he did almost all of the technical work single handedly would not be an overstatement. Uh, I'm just he, he did such a great job. And in addition to that, he's a big horror guy, which is awesome. for oh. us. You know, so we'd be able to talk about our sensibilities and talk about you know, scenes that we wanted to homage or scenes that we wanted to, you know, uh, emulate. And, uh, like, it, it was just this really great collaborative experience where the two of us were constantly trying to make the movie better. And, you know, when you refer to the, the kills and whatnot, uh, Chad was constantly saying, this is something that sound will sell. You know, mm-hmm. and we wanted our our horror to be as much in camera as we possibly could. We didn't want to, you know, have a bunch of uh, CGI or digital effects that we weren't sure how they were going to turn out. Mm-hmm. So we did as much as we could in camera and de- depended on those things that look good and that we could make sound good in post. Well, the kills look spectacular. And I have to say, I commend you on your special effects, whoever was in charge of the blood, it actually looks like blood from the body parts. <laughs> because it, now you know when you stab or maim certain parts of your body, different colors of blood. It's not all the same color. And 
you paid attention to that here, and I love that. I love that. We've got abdominal blood. One of, one of the things that happened on set is uh, we were mixing our own blood, and uh, someone bought the wrong color food dye, and our blood came out pink. <gasps> and we had to stop everything, you know, for like several hours in order to unpink the blood. <laughs> oh, my God. How did you unpink it? We just we had to trash it, send somebody to the nearest grocery store, which was you know not close. We were in the middle of nowhere, um, usually at the middle of the, in the middle of the night. But we were able to find an open grocery store and buy the uh, the makings again for that perfect blood. Well, your various tone, tinges of blood tone are are fabulous. Absolutely fabulous, and you didn't you didn't spare the blood either. You you no, were very gen- it's a very, slasher movie. <laughs> very generous you in your blood, blood. <laughs> generous in bloodletting. That that could be my. I have t- to say that my my actors were such champs because there's nothing worse than it being three a.m. in the morning. It's freezing cold outside. I'm like, here, lay down on this cold grass, and I'm going to pour wet, sticky, fake blood all over you and pretend to just keep your eyes open. They, they were champs and, uh, the whole way through. But that blood is cold. Oh, my. But it looks, every single one of the, of the deaths looks spectacular. They awesome. all look spectacular. Um, you know, I was very impressed with that and the fact that so much of the, only a few are in daylight, most are at night, uh, some interiors, um, mm-hmm. and I love the balance, the contrast, the lighting that Chad has for the interiors. It has that, uh, a yellowy tone, but not a golden warm tone. So it's almost right. it's almost like a metaphor for caution, yellow caution, uh, and then the reds coming right after. So and then the reds come. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like the the light tone that um, that he came up with. It really works well, plays well with that wood uh, in those interiors. So it it looks great, and then we go outside. And you make use of the fog. You you let people breathe, and we see the the air coming out of their mouths as they're breathing. Um, yep. I oh. mean, if it's cold, you might as well use it, right? And it's horror, so it works. Um, a big yep. a big part of this one with with the actual killer killer who's filming himself and his kills um, mm. or her. It could be either one. Because you give us, that's one of the great things with this script, Blaine, is you set us up. I had no clue until the <laughs> reveal who is the killer, the, who is the real life killer. Um, not, the, not the movie that within a movie. That is one thing that I'm proud of. Whoa. Very few people have claimed to uh, have figured it out before the end, which... Uh, which makes me very happy because, you know, you, you're making a movie where you have, you know, one of these people in the film is a killer. And, you know, it, you, you want to be surprising. You want to be subversive, you know, and uh, that, that that works, that we stick that landing. I'm, I'm very proud of You sure as hell stuck that landing. And, yeah, I mean, you throw in 
you create ambiguity, such as they make the one pit stop so that Abigail can throw up, um, and <laughs> and Tabitha can go steal the head the the head of a scarecrow that's sitting out on the road. Um, you have an old lady who's totally totally pissed off that her scarecrow head was stolen, and the way the costume you have her in. And then the first, the glimpses that we see of the slasher, you think, oh, maybe it's her. But then you think back to what you saw earlier in the film, and it's like, oh, no, it can't be her. Well, could it be her and the ring cahoots? You set this up <laughs> so that you're thinking these things. And then, okay, this person is missing. Oh, where's that person? Could it be that person? Um, you really keep us going. You keep that suspense. And... While you, and you're not doing a slow burn with it either, Blaine. Um, you keep that suspense, but you're moving. Your pacing is great, and it's just one thing after another. Nobody has time to breathe. It's like, oh, okay, didn't get me. I got the door shut. I got the door locked. Oh, wait, <laughs> he's coming in the window. Um, you know, you really... That, that pacing is a thing for me, especially in a lot of the... Uh, the newer horror films that have been coming out the last few years. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I like things to move. You know, I think like, I like things to move quickly and, uh, to be a roller coaster ride kind of thing. You know, obviously it's, that's not going to be for every film or whatever. Uh, but with this kind of film, I I want it to be a popcorn edge of your seat from beginning to end kind of thing. And I've noticed that there's some uh, kind of trotting, you know, slower paced uh, horror films that I think are trying to, you know, get the suspense going. But to me, it's just like, all right, cut to the chase. Wait, let's go. Let's go. And uh, so I, I do think this movie moves because of my own sensibilities. Well, it's also it, it, it actually gets your heart rate going. So therefore, you're expending more calories. Get that energy level up and keep it up for the whole <laughs> film. You know, you're thinking ahead here. You're doing you're doing everyone a favor, Blaine. Um, I, I, hey, you're welcome, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> I love that. I love the pacing on this, and I like the edit. I like the cuts um, that you do them. They're fast. Uh, you don't yep. draw. This is one of those films. You know, I love dissolves. I love soft things, but when it's appropriate, this is not a film for that. Um, so I really like the cuts, and I like the pacing that you came up with for this film. And hand-in-hand hand with that, though, I got to tell you, is something that I truly admire that you did here, that you did with um, Tim Grogan, with the music. The mm-hmm. music does not lead us down the primrose path of horror. Right. We are not being told by the music what is coming. And, you know, and I, I, I love the score, and I think Tim Grogan did this did an amazing job. And my favorite thing about it is kind of what you're uh, alluding to, is that it's not cookie-cutter nope. uh, horror film score. It's kind of weird, and which is awesome because Tim is kind of a weirdo, you know? And he, <laughs> he uses all these different uh, <laughs> things to make music that aren't typically, you know, uh, music instruments. And but like it comes out having this creepy, unsettling kind of feeling about it, and I, I just I love it. Oh, I I love the score, but it is not traditionally what we would expect 
in a horror film. And right. I like that. But, you know, it doesn't lead us. There's so many films. It's like, okay, all right, we know something's coming. Yep, we know the jump is coming. Up, oh, we hear we hear the tremolo. <laughs> um, all right, they're holding that note a little too long. All right, something. Up, oh, here it is. So you didn't. You don't give us that. You and Tim don't give us that, and I really appreciate that. Um, you went outside the box. You didn't do traditional, and I love it. You know, and I have to give credit to Chad McLarnan, you know, for that. He he knew Tim and was like, this guy's perfect. And, you know, I, I trusted him with the, the, the music. And when I heard the beginning of it, I'm like, yes, further that way. Just keep embracing the, you know, the out-of-the-box uh, sensibilities. Um, but, yeah, that was really satisfying because it was a real collaborative effort to find the right tone for this movie you know and uh i grogan's just great you know now is it my imagine this has a definite feel this film would fit in the 70s in the 80s the 90s it has an older a, a more timeless feel to it yeah i i think you're right and uh, I, I i we were not purposefully trying to make it feel 80s or 90s but we were definitely aiming towards like a style and an homage to, you know, the, the, the slasher film mm -hmm. of yesteryear, yeah. you know? Um, and like, I think the nineties part of it is the kind of sense of humor that it has, you know, that I think may, you know, was brought back by scream and then was emulated over and over again. Um, but we love those movies and mm -hmm. we're like, you know, I, I like, my horror film to have a little sense of humor, but not to what, what I have seen in a lot of the remakes recently is you get like a, some kid who's like the stand up comedian and he just stands there and does, you know, a bunch of shtick yep. and then somebody gets killed. And I don't like that. I like it to be within the characters. These are just smart, funny people in a very scary situation. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like, I, I get a few laughs out of the film and, you know, a few laughs, a few screams. Mm -hmm. What else do you need? That's it. Well, you know, and I would be remiss not to mention, how did you get Hank Stone? Hank Stone, play <laughs> I, uh, you know, Hank Stone has been a stalwart for decades um, in films. Walker, Texas Ranger, he had a recurring role in there. Um, goes back to the <laughs> Patriot, Cold Mountain. Um, I love watching Hank Stone. I was beyond tickled when I saw him pop up on screen. He is great. Uh, I, I got Hank Stone because I, I worked with him uh, a couple years ago where I made a movie called Santa Girl, uh, mm -hmm. which is on Netflix right now, by the way. Uh, it's uh, Barry Boswick and Jennifer Stone and Devin Werkheiser and Hank Stone. Um, but it's you know that's more obviously you couldn't get much more different from getaway than santa girl but we had worked together on that and uh, he was in the area and i'm like man i'll i'll write a part for hank you know get him in here oh my god i was that really that just tickled me to no end when hank popped up on screen and he plays a character he he plays it, this character of vic the caretaker of the grounds with such ambiguity mm -hmm. That, you know, he's got you on his own roller coaster ride. And he's only in a few scenes. 
but Hank works he's a them. wonderful actor and so intense. He's like he's got this intensity no matter what he's playing where it's like you can't really take your eyes off of him. So, you know, because we're almost out of time here, Blaine, I've got to ask you, you know, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker in this one, other than the fact that you very smartly, unlike in Cut to the Chase, where you're also acting in it, you took off that hat, so you you, ha- you minimized your hats here. But what did you what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker with this film because of its history and getting to this point of getting made that you'll now be able to take forward in your career and with other films that you make? I I think like well, you know you learn so much with every movie and uh, like it's it's difficult to really boil it down. But I will say, vaguely, what I learned is um, that I can take a licking, you know, and keep going. Um, Like, this was the hardest shoot I've ever been on, um, just as far as logistics and um, being uncomfortable and, you know, doing several jobs at once. And, you know, there were days or nights, rather, where, you know, I would just sit down next to Chad and be like, okay, uh, what's next? Um, but we just kind of kept our heads down and kept moving through. And we also had fun days, you know, that it was awesome to get to work with young, uh, cast and crew who were so excited to be there. There were no egos. It was just, you know, they would follow wherever I led and they did, and they did a great job. But it's like, I, I think the thing I learned the most is that, you know, if you keep your head down and just keep moving forward, we can accomplish a lot of things. Well, I think you you accomplished something wonderful. I just I got the biggest kick out of watching Getaway, uh, and I'm going to watch it again just because it's so much fun. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really, really, uh, it's just so much fun. Everybody can watch it now because it's out on all the digital platforms and on demand. Correct? It's out. It's everywhere. Uh, you can go to. Uh getawayhorror.com and have links to all the different places you can buy it, iTunes, Amazon, all that jazz. Yeah, because I know this came out just before Christmas. I think the 22nd of... Yeah, yeah. seasonally appropriate, don't you think? <laughs> there, It is always seasonally appropriate for horror. There, there, <laughs> I, I agree. Hey, there's another horror movie that came out like the week before Christmas, too. Uh, Black Pumpkin. Uh, oh, yeah? How was that? It's strange, but it's good. It's strange, awesome. but no, it came out in time for Christmas too. I'm like, all right, Halloween's my favorite occasion of the year, so let's bring Halloween to Christmas. That's fine with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. So everybody, they have you have no excuse. Go see uh, Getaway from the comfort of your couch. Run, don't walk to your couch. Um, you know, and this yeah, is. I, I, this is truly a popcorn flick, too. I Thank you. I, I love that. It, it's a super fun movie, and I hope people check it out. There's actually a lot of movies called Getaway, we've learned yes. recently. So, uh, you know, getawayhorror.com is the best way to go, but also you can look up my name to make sure it's the right getaway. Yes. <laughs> it's this, an interesting problem to have. This is not the Chuck, this is not the Ethan Hawke movie Getaway. Which is, a, no, actually, no, which is actually superb action film. 
Um, but you know, no. I've never seen it. I think that's <sighs> why I was so surprised at the uh, that there was a, t- a title problem because I'd never seen it. Yeah, well, you know, we've got The Getaway, then there's Getaway, which is Ethan Hawke's movie. Now there's yours, which is Get Away. Um, yep. And there's another Getaway from this year uh, that's another indie film that drops, like, you know, earlier in the year. So lots of Getaways. Lots but of Getaways. Ours get- is the, the great one. <laughs> yours is a fabulous one, like the fabulous Blaine Weaver. There it is. Yes. But this is definitely, it is, it's a popcorn film, run to your couch, sit there with your popcorn, and this is the kind of film you could actually watch a few times with, with other people who you're allowed to be associating with in, in the era of COVID, and, uh, right. you know, and start throwing things in and saying lines of dialogue. So this can be a fun gathering kind of film, too. It's really it. I, I agree with that completely. Yeah, you could even have Zoom parties for this one. <laughs> in, in all honesty, you really could. Um, it's that it, kind. Of, it's that kind of film. I, I think it's fun. I think it's seat of your pants. I think everybody uh, gets a kick out of it and uh, get some scares, get some laughs. Hey, you know what's wrong with that? That's it, Blaine. Thank you so much, my friend. You will be back. So again. great to hear from you again. You will be back again in the future, I am sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. Well, you thank you so much, Blaine, and we will talk to you again soon. But in the meantime, everybody can see Get Away. Thanks, Blaine. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was writer-director Blaine Weaver, and he's got a whole catalog of films. Uh, little indie films that are great that you can see. Uh, and now, since we only have about five minutes of the interview left, Pam, let's go ahead and jump back to Simon West so that you can hear the rest of Simon's interview talking about Skyfire. It's possible and what to look out for and who they're dealing with. You know, you have to sort of introduce the monster or the bad guy. And that's what I do in, in the beginning with a sort of holographic representation of it. And it also means a lot to our main character, um, you know, the young uh, female scientist, uh, Mung, because, you know, th- th- that same volcano has struck her family before. Yeah. So she, has a, she has a sort of vested interest in understanding this, this monster and making sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. And um, so it's, it's sort of personal between her and the volcano. And it definitely is that to her adversary is and and it it would have been um possibly safe and dormant if it hadn't been interfered with by sort of human um <laughs> excavation and endeavor so it's a, you know it's a, it's a lesson as well in that and as i'm watching the film and i see meng's passion and her obsession with this volcano it reminded me of helen hunt's character in twister and her obsession with with twisters with tornadoes because the, the tornado had taken her family from her, much as the volcano takes Meng's mother, you know, from her early on uh, as a child. So it's haunted her. And I just, I think it's something that everybody will be able to, to spot and connect with. But I love... Yeah, because I think, I think there always has to be a reason why your main character yeah. is there and at this point. And so usually if they've suffered a loss or they've been affected in some way by by this environment that we're in, 
then you know that's a good reason. I mean, everybody chooses a, a career for some reason, and if if you're operating in this incredibly dangerous world, it's usually a very strong reason why you went into it. You don't go into it, you know, for idly or for fun. There must have been something significant in your life that made you want to go into this dangerous environment. And and volcanoes are incredibly dangerous, and a lot of volcanologists have lost their lives mm-hmm. studying them. And it's not. It's not a benign science. It's not, you know, studying tree frogs in the, you know, in the Amazon, you know, which can also have its dangers. But, but volcanology is extremely dangerous because these things can explode at a moment's notice and you just can't get away. I've got to ask you, Simon, what was the most challenging aspect of bringing Skyfire to life? Because you really bring it to life. Uh, with so many moving parts to this one. Well, I think it's because we shot in real environments. I shot in the real steaming jungles, and uh, it was physically hard. And so it wasn't, you know, us sitting on a green screen in a nice air-conditioned studio. We really were out in the same environment. And I tried to do everything as much in camera. So there was real flame, real explosions, real heat, uh, real wind and ash. And so, you know, the actors and the crew are all going through a lot of the same environmental, you know, issues you would in a real volcano, hopefully stopping you short of, you know, um, falling into lava. But the hardest thing with this thing is that it's just the way I shoot. My style is very real, and so um, it's grueling physically to, to actually go through that. But I think it's worth it for the audience in the end. They can tell that you were really there, and the, and the actors really went through some of these arduous situations. It, it pays off in spades, Simon. And I, I do have to tell you, your static electricity scene is one of the most hauntingly beautiful scenes I've ever seen. Thank you. And that is real as well. That's another one that came out of my research that actually happened, that static. You can, people talk about that a lot. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, Simon, this has been a real treat to get to talk to you again. It's been too long. Yeah, you too. I hope the same thing. Have a wonderful holiday season, Simon. You too, Debbie. Take care. Bye-bye now. Lots of love. Bye-bye. And that was Simon West, director of Skyfire. I love Skyfire. It's just a fun, fun disaster movie about volcanoes. Um, it looks beautiful, and there is a lot of it's where action and disaster meet. Uh, it, Simon does an excellent job. I love Jason Isaac's performance, and there are some wonderful Asian actors in the film. But it really well worth a look. You can see it tomorrow. You can also see Jason's other film tomorrow. Dr. Bird's advice for sad poets. So you could do a Jason Isaacs marathon tomorrow. And very quickly, I just want to mention, if I can find my note, there are a couple other really terrific indies that are opening, that are releasing tomorrow as well, digitally, uh, on demand. Alex Knapp's film, Go, Don't Go. It has shades, it haunting, um, like a Terrence Malick film. It's a beautiful film. It's a thought-provoking film. Uh, I love it. I spoke with Alex the other day. On, I actually spoke with him on Friday. So that interview will be coming soon. Climate of the Hunter by Mickey Reese. Oh, my God. Vampires, or are they? It is a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Visual stunner. 
It has some interesting, uh, interesting things happening within the script itself, within the performances, but uh, the idea of the film and its visual appeal is stunning. Of course, if you haven't seen it yet, Shadow in the Cloud, starring Chloe Grace Moretz. It is. It opened on New Year's Day. It is kick-ass personified. I can't recommend it highly enough. Written and directed Roseanne Liang, uh, writer and director of that. Of course, Phyllida Lloyd herself. Awards contention here, people. Um, A wonderful, wonderful film. And, of course, one of my picks of the year, George Clooney's The Midnight Sky. Uh, And, seriously, Martin Rue... Um, cinematographer should be high on all of the awards list uh, for consideration for best cinematography this year. But that is all the time we have. Of course, we, we ran long today. We always run long. Why, why change now in year seven? Um, next week, another live guest, and you'll hear my exclusive with Frank Stallone. I ended, my, I ended 2020 with Jason Isaacs. Started 2021 with Frank Stallone. Go figure. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 